Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, this is the Prospect Podcast with me, Tom Clark, and I bring you your weekly dose of politics. And I've just been wondering whether Brexiteers would take responsibility if there were negative consequences from a no deal. And culture. What's really interesting about her and what makes the reissue so worthwhile is that, along with perhaps Elizabeth David, she was one of the first writers who made a case for food as something serious to think about. And this week we speak to Claire Malone from the US political website 538.com where she's a staff writer. In our latest issue of Prospect, that's the November magazine, she's written a big piece for us on American socialism. To many of us Europeans, it sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it might be time to get used to it. I think in some parts of the US, to sort of say you're a democratic socialist is an indicator that you are just that woke, just that politically woke, and you you want to change the system. More on that later, but first I'm joined here in the studio with Stephanie Boland, who's Prospect's digital editor, and Alex Dean, our politics watcher. And first, Alex, uh, over to you, bravely making it in, despite having been made ill by Brexit, but you're now looking ahead, before the dust has settled on anything, to uh, a blame game of some sorts. I've just been thinking about the prospects of a no-deal Brexit, which have gone up um, over the weekend, and you know, never far away, but as talks you know, get closer and closer um, to the deadline, the risk is obviously going up. And I've just been wondering whether Brexiteers would take responsibility if there were negative consequences from a no deal. And I think probably on past form, the answer has to be no. And I've just been wondering about about the way that, that they try and pin the blame on other people. So what we've seen so far is a bit of blame pinned on you know, unreconciled Ramonas talking Britain down, businesses who have kind of, you know, sent scare stories, EU intransigence even. And I just wondered whether the, if there was a no deal, what the Brexiteers would say to try and persuade everyone that it wasn't their fault. <laughs> It's odd as well, isn't it? Because it almost shows a lack of confidence in Brexit as a project in that if you truly believe that Brexit is going to be worth it, it would make sense to go, hey, in the short term, there might be some issues, but on balance, here's why we should go ahead. And it's almost like they go, no, it has to be perfect. Otherwise, somebody else is sabotaging us. Yeah. Boris, um, for all his faults, said something uh, just after the referendum campaign that I was slightly surprised we haven't heard more about, which was the idea of Brexit as being like a Nike tick. And the idea was that it would go down before it went up. And I actually thought that was quite a sensible <laughs> quite a sensible <laughs> argument to make because then you insulate yourself against any short-term chaos. You say, yeah, we've said all along, it's going to go down before it goes up. You know, the expectations have been set so high now. The bar's been set so high. Any 
short-term disruption, let alone the no-deal Brexit stuff we've been hearing about with, you know, the transportation of nuclear isotopes and, you know, planes grounded and all that kind of horror story stuff. If that happens, I just don't think the electorate are prepared for it. What are the Brexiteers going to say when that when that shock kind of sinks in? But doesn't the history of nationalism, of which Brexit is definitely a flavour of nationalism, suggest that the fairly obvious thing to do is to blame Johnny Foreigner? In, if Johnny Foreigner is the EU, I think they'll blame EU intransigence, um, which is a, there's this really interesting shifting of the goalposts that's happened, which is that Brexiteers said that we'd get a great deal. Liam Fox said a trade deal would be the easiest in human history. I spoke to David Davis a couple of days before the referendum, and he said that, you know, German what is it, car manufacturers is the classic kind of classic thing. They'd be knocking down our doors to try and get in um, and, and secure a good deal. So there's been this really interesting shifting of the goalposts where Brexiteers promised a good deal. As it's looking less and less likely that that's going to happen, they've started to say, well, the reason we're not going to get a good deal is because of the EU. And that proves that we need to leave, which is a kind of rhetorical pivot that I'm, I'm not sure is, <laughs> is permissible in, in the realm of good argument. I'm not sure I, I'm OK with that. Uh, you know, that transfer. Whatever happens, you know, whether we end up in a sort of Norway type situation where not very much changes, but we're outside the club, or if we end up um, uh, with, you know, some middle way like Theresa May has proposed, or we end up like crashing out. In any event, it's not going to be all smooth and all free, if you see what I mean. So we're not going to get both the freedom and the smoothness. And uh, as a result, there's going to be um, something to complain about. And the hunt will be on to point the finger at someone or other, won't it? The Remain campaign, or as they've you know really excellently branded it now, the People's Vote campaign, I think everyone's using that term now, it's an incredible piece of branding. Um, I worry that they've built in this assumption that when things go badly, pro-Remain sentiment is going to grow rather than anti-EU sentiment, if you see what I mean. I think it's plausible that Brexiteers will be able to spin it as all being the fault of the EU, and that encourages everyone to want to leave. Thank you, Alex, and no doubt you'll keep a close eye on that uh, messy blame game as it unfolds. But Stephanie, you've chosen something that you think might cheer us up a bit by contrast, I guess. The reissue of a whole load of uh, cookbooks by a great American food writer, MFK Fisher. I think I've got that right. That is right. Yeah, I thought between kind of Brexit catastrophe and the tangled fortunes of the Democrats in America, we could use something slightly more cheerful. Um, so this is Daunt Books uh, reissuing Consider the Oyster by MFK Fisher, who's a fascinating writer who perhaps isn't as well known in the UK as she is in the US. MFK Fisher is a food writer originally from Michigan, and there's actually a really lovely description of her beginnings in Christoph Ribet's new book, In the Restaurant, um, which is this brilliant montage of stories relating to restaurants and dining out as a social practice. And he tells the story of the early years of this young woman's marriage, where she and her then-husband arrived in Dijon in 1929. And she went there and was introduced to this really highly localised French idiosyncratic culinary world, you know, where the waiter comes over to your table and cares for you and helps you pick out a wine and dishes. And it was completely different to what she knew in America. Um, and eventually she goes back to the States and she and her husband split up and she manages to make her living initially writing memories of restaurants like these. 
And then she goes on to become this fantastic American food writer. What's really interesting about her and what makes the reissue so worthwhile is that, along with perhaps Elizabeth David, she was one of the first writers who made a case for food as something serious to think about. It's not just you have your cookbook in the home and you need to make dishes to feed your family. She makes this argument that cooking and eating are part of society and they reflect on society precisely because they're that every day they permeate every part of our lives and so her writing is all about that mediation between what we experience day to day and what's going on in in the world and that was incredibly radical at the time and uh, our listeners will not know but um you've kind of got a PhD in this stuff right Steph literally (laughs) yeah I mentioned her in my PhD I mean um, what's really fascinating about Fisher as opposed to some of the other people writing at that time is that her writing is incredibly sensual it's all about the senses but it's also very funny and it retains that quality even when she's writing about you know some of the really miserable things that happen in the 20th century like the war or in the US the depression so she writes this book in 1942 which is called How to Cook a Wolf and this is you know the idea of keeping the wolf from the door um, and it's tremendously funny even though it's how do you manage to eke out a meal for your family when nobody's got enough to eat so she talks about polenta for instance which is still in supply and she says it can be the mainstay of a poor family's nourishment or the central dish of a buffet supper for 20 jaded literary critics with equal nonchalance <laughs> as someone who kind of doesn't know much about this sort of thing can you give me a flavor of the writing yeah so um but i mean when we look at Consider the Oyster, which is this book that's coming back out. It's originally from 1941. And um, I mean, I've, I've said she's not, she's remembered in America, but sometimes her, her prose and her radicalism are a little bit overlooked. Um, so I thought it'd be nice to read a bit of this wonderfully dry first person prose that she does. So Consider the Oyster is all these different stories about oysters from cultural, historical, autobiographical tales. And this is what she says about how you should eat one. The Portuguese and the rarer European Austria Idula should be eaten in one way and one way only, a Frenchman thinks. And therefore he feels with some firmness that all other oysters in the world should be so treated. It should be opened at street temperature in a cool month, never iced, and plucked from its rough irregular shell at once so that its black gills still vibrate and cringe with the shock of the air upon them. It should be swallowed not too fast. Then its fine salt juices, more like the smell of rock pools at low tide than any other food in the world, should be drunk at one gulp from the shell. Then, of course, a bite or two of buttered brown bread must follow, better to stimulate the papillas. And then, of course, of course, a fine mouthful of white wine. Thank you, Stephanie. We're going to have to leave that there because I certainly don't think I can improve on that by way of a starter. But now it's time for our main dish, which is also an American one. In the November issue of Prospect, the senior writer at 538, Claire Malone, looks at the growing popularity of socialism in the United States. Yes, I really did say that right. Since the financial crisis, large numbers of Americans, especially the young, have, she writes, been attracted to new ideas. And there's a growing sense on the left that the economy and society needs to change. So we're delighted to be joined now by Claire, who's down the line from New York City. Claire, hello. Hi, great to be here. Um, And thanks so much for joining us. Um, I mean... To British ears, this idea of uh, socialism in the in the United States sounds like a you know a contradiction in 
terms, how real is it? You know, I think it's real in so much as it is, it is, it's not that we're electing socialists or many socialists to national office in the U.S. There are some that are in state legislatures and city councils, um, but on the national level, there aren't that many. But I do think within the Democratic Party, um, the candidacy of Bernie Sanders and the way he reframed socialism from the kind of scary Cold War terms to more fuzzy, happy, uh, modern shades of FDR's New Deal in the wake of the financial crisis. I think that's something that really resonates with people. Um, and so in some ways, the ideas have have infiltrated the, the Democratic Party, if not the label itself by by politicians. It's but it's I do I would say it's a growing um, a growing force in a Democratic Party that's getting more and more liberal over the decades. So for you at this stage, it's more a kind of tide of ideas point rather than an organisational point. Nonetheless, um, you uh, do write of a few high profile campaigns as well as Sanders where there's there has been a bit of um, traction for people who are actually calling themselves uh, socialists. Yes. So outside of Bernie Sanders, who obviously was, uh, you know, he's a he's an independent senator in Congress. He's not technically a Democrat and he identified as a Democratic socialist. Um, but then there were a couple of, of women candidates in uh, you know my home state of, of New York um, who ran as these kind of loud and proud socialists. And the most notable one is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who um, was running against a, a Joe Crowley, who was a member of um, Nancy Pelosi's t- top leadership team. So she's the um, minority leader in par- in, in uh, the House of Representatives. And, and Ocasio-Cortez, this 28-year-old woman, uh, kind of came out of nowhere to a lot of people in politics when she beat Joe Crowley this summer. She is telegenic. She is very out there as far as her views on socialism, out there in the sense of she is willing to voice them and she's willing to slap the socialist label on them. And her victory really caught a lot of people by surprise and led to a lot of the a lot of other candidates kind of trying to be like, well, I endorse Ocasio-Cortez. It led to Cynthia Nixon, who is who is a former actress on Sex and the City. Your listeners might remember her as Miranda. Uh, she was running for uh, she was running in the Democratic primary against the current governor of New York. And she came out and she said, well, I'm a Democratic socialist, too. And so I think in some parts of the U.S., uh, to sort of say you're a Democratic socialist is an indicator that you are just that woke, just that politically woke, and you um, you want to change the system. But I, I will say that it has been confined to, I would say, the East Coast in a lot of ways on the national level, um, with those those two candidates kind of being the, the biggest ones from this the past couple of months who came out as democratic socialists. Now, um, it's interesting you mentioned this woman's age, 28. I think you're fairly similar in age, yourself quite young, and you say you graduated at the time of the... Lehman Brothers uh, catastrophe that, 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 that started the the financial crisis, um, and I think I heard you talk on a podcast on the Five Through Eight podcast with colleagues just earlier in the summer, and you were saying there was this sort of generation gap between you and people who were ten or twelve years older in terms of just whether there's an instinctive allergy to this word socialism, which uh, I think your colleague Nate Silver was saying he had grown up with, but you said you and your your uh, mob hadn't. 
Yeah, you know, I was I was born in 87, so I wasn't I I kind of, you know, the Russia that I knew was was more kind of uh like Boris Yeltsin's sort of stumbling into capitalism Russia that was you know wasn't I don't remember the Berlin Wall falling which someone a few years older than I would would remember and you know so Russia wasn't this looming threat when I was growing up and then I would say that that sort of the Soviet Union wasn't wasn't a, a specter in my childhood that coupled with the fact that I think a lot of us who you know I graduated from college as you just said right you know 8 months after Lehman Brothers sort of started the, you know, the entire crash of the economy. I remember listening to radio port, radio reports in my college dorm room about how everything was falling apart. And a lot of my friends graduated from college with no jobs or maybe didn't get their um, career going for, you know, for a couple of years. The, you know, there was a real sense that things would be different for my generation of Americans. So, you know, people started to say, well, I'm never going to own a house, um, which, you know, in the American dream, quote unquote, um, you're supposed to have a house in a two car garage. And that was something where people were saying, well, why would I, why would I take on all that debt? Why would I, um, why would I risk, you know, being foreclosed on? And so I think in some ways you saw a shift in the way we thought about the system that had crashed. And I think for a lot of Americans, the fact that no bankers were punished, um, with jail time or very, very few, was odd and you've you know you've seen earlier this summer you know a lot of regulations a lot of dodd frank regulations so that big bill that was passed after the financial crisis to try to put more controls on big banks you saw a ton of those regulations rolled back just this year not just by republicans but by uh democrats in the u.s congress so i think that there is a little bit of a sense uh by americans and particularly americans my age that you know what Bernie Sanders said about the system being broken at the, and that the politicians being in on it. That that resonates with people my age, I think more so than perhaps with older people and the that system being capitalism writ large. And so if you say, hey, democratic socialism is like old school American democracy, it's like FDR's democracy, then you you can kind of understand the generational shifts because we don't have the prejudices of the Cold War. And we have a new way of thinking about the U.S. inside the global marketplace. Yeah, although it's interesting, isn't it, that even, um, you know, FDR or um, Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty and all of that, they didn't go in for this kind of language of class in quite the same way as is very common in in Europe. And so, it, it, I mean, it does... From here, it seems a relatively new thing in in America. You know, I'm older than you, and I can remember a bit further back. But I'm I'm, I'm finding it's startling, and like what British listeners will be um, thinking, I think, listening to you talk about Bernie Sanders, this kind of seventy something year old guy who's held his position for so many years, maybe not changed his mind about too many things, and then waited and waited for long enough for a new generation to turn up. Well, that's also how it is here with Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, who's pushing 70 and has been in the House of Commons saying almost exactly the same thing since 1983, um, and then has found this support, not so much from his own age group as people like you who graduated into this post-crash wilderness. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think what you, the the point about the way Americans and Europeans think about themselves in classes is really interesting because, I mean, 
you know, I mentioned the American dream before, but I'll bring up the idea of uh, American exceptionalism and American individualism. Even though we know, we learn in, you know, English lit class or that, that these are kind of mystical concepts of America, I think we really do believe a lot of that stuff about ourselves. So the idea that Britain is a country that is ancient in a lot of ways, but the U.S. is this bootstrapping you know, we went out and conquered the West with, you know, just our gumption and our Horatio Alger kind of stories of going from rags to riches. So the way that a lot of American politicians, particularly in my lifetime, and I would say from, you know, post-war until the early 20th century, people talked about how do you get rich or how do you, you know, um, how do you make life better for your children? How do you move to the next social ladder? And I do think this idea, we don't like thinking of ourselves as, um, you know, the middle class or the lower class. We don't like thinking of ourselves as the teeming masses who uh, the great American oligarchs are taking advantage of. That kind of insults our idea of um, what it means to be an American and, and what we could potentially be in 10 years or what our kids could be in 30 years. And I think in some ways what has changed with the rise of Sanders and frankly with the rise of Trump when he sort of tried to make the Republican Party, you know, a little bit more of a working man's party is those two politicians verbalized something that resonated deep down with Americans, which was you're getting screwed. And guess who's screwing you? You know, this very small, very rich class of people. And it for whatever reason, has sunk into, I think, the American vernacular in the past three years, more more so than I can remember. You know, there were talk, there were, you know, Occupy Wall Street in 2011 had shades of this, but I do think the language is changing about the way we think of the wealthiest people in America and the rest of us. figures about the growth in you know the income share or the wealth share that accrues to the top one percent you know all those changes and how, how, how long the median wages have been stuck they go back to like the 70s don't they but it feels like there's been this kind of wake-up call that is so much um more recent and uh, that yeah people are now suddenly ready to almost think of themselves as victims, <laughs> which, um, you know, you could say, if you're just looking at the statistics, you might say, well, most Americans have been taken for a ride for a very long time, where um, CEOs paying themselves ever more have been concerned. And yet, uh, it took the crash to mean that the, the, the penny dropped. Do you think that's right? I think that's very right. I remember Occupy Wall Street as being the first time that again, this is when I would have been a couple years after college, but the first time when people talked about how much debt they had. And, it, you know, we all had debt in college, but no one talked about it. It was, it was, you were going to the school and, you know, I went to a private university um, and there were a lot of middle class kids, but no one talked about what they were doing and what their parents were doing to get into college. And in 2011, the term wealth inequality started coming up everywhere and everyone started talking about how much debt they were in. And I think there was a little bit about this during the crash for sure. But there was just this sense of like um, everyone staring into their future and saying, my God, how am I, how am I going to get out from under this? And I think it started these conversations that we're still having today, uh, and they have only evolved since 2011, that were about 
um, that were that were making what had been subtext text, which was talking about, um, you know, it doesn't just mean that you it's if you're rich, you have an easier time um, paying for college. You might have an easier time getting into college. You might have an easier time starting a business. And the, and I think a lot of people started um, speaking more about it. And so it it's you know it is kind of this. It does feel like a recent thing, silly as it might sound to British listeners, where we really started talking about what it took to, you know, from one generation to the next, kind of move up the class ladder. And it wasn't happening for a lot of people because of the crash. That's the sort of big ideas, if you like. But then if we just turn yeah. to the specific policies, some of them of this this outfit you talk about, founded in 1982, the Democratic Socialists of America, um, and that sort of works, am I right, by kind of infiltrating, agitating within the Democratic Party, getting behind some candidates and trying to push them to the left. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think going back to Bernie Sanders, you know, he got elected to Congress in 1990. There aren't that many national figures um, who won who won office as Democratic Socialists. And your listeners should know that Vermont is a very, like much of New England, is a very quirky state in a lot of ways it has a lot of you know gun owners but also a lot of hippies so in some ways bernie sanders victory in vermont was interesting but yeah i mean the early democratic socialists in america or the you know the the the, uh, the predecessors to the democratic socialists of america um were you know often i think those those parties and early dsa included were almost more pro- yeah protest organs within the left um, and sometimes within the Democratic Party, although I think they, the, the, the brand of Democratic Socialists has for a long time been calling mainstream Democrats, you know, corporate shills. Uh, I believe they did endorse Jesse Jackson for president way back with his Rainbow Coalition, but they were largely, um, you know, advocating within unions and they were protesting at the apartheid, uh, you know, and during the apartheid movement, they were protesting against um, cuts to social welfare programs, Medicare, Medicaid, you know, food food stamp programs in, in America. So they really, I mean, and the biggest figure in, in American socialism, I would say, was Michael Harrington, who was this uh, guy who came out of uh, the Catholic worker sort of mindset. And, and so a lot of his focus was on poverty. And I think that, um, you know, you, actually at a lot of American Catholic universities, you'll see these centers for social justice, um, which, which happened long before uh, social justice became a, an odd pejorative from the American right. Um, but, but I think it wasn't until recently that democratic socialists had any sort of real, like, um, were sending a slate of candidates into office i'd say this past year is the first year really and 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 the policies you say they in the past they were like fighting cuts here and there on medicare medicare but yeah but now they're on the front foot with this thing single payer healthcare which you know roughly in english language is something like a national health service uh doesn't sound so frightening or um exotic over here but um even just a few years ago when obama was trying to um uh, tidy up American healthcare. He was careful not to be painted into the corner where he was seen as 
promoting this idea, wasn't he? But now I gather even former President Obama has shifted on this. Yeah, I mean, it's the the Democratic stances around single payer, payer health care have really changed. I don't think Joe Biden, Obama's vice president, has explicitly come out for single payer, in part because he's still hoping to win these um these people who voted for Trump, who might still yet turn back to the Democratic Party, who see single payer health care as this kind of ominous, um, the government wants to control our lives kind of thing. And I think the conversation about Obama's health care reform got really ugly really quickly, um, probably for a couple of reasons. One of them, which is Americans do have uh, a thing about too much government intrusion. I do think that's a, like a particular American <laughs> uh, strain of thought, even within, I would say, large swaths of um, the Democratic coalition. And two, I think there was a lot of stuff just related to Obama himself as, and this is an entirely separate conversation, but, you know, a black politician, yeah. things like that. Um, yes, yeah, so the conversation around healthcare has certainly changed. I think Sanders has a lot to do with that. But there are also a lot of democratic socialist policies that are, I think, perhaps even more foreign to Americans that are, you're starting to see them bubble up a little bit in the 2020 potential candidates for, for, for president from the democratic side. So, you know, free college tuition is something you're starting to see discussed. Universal employment is another interesting thing, which hasn't gotten too much play, but is, but is, is entering the fringes of the conversation. And I would it's something that the Demo- it's on the democratic socialist sort of platform, and I would guess that in the next couple of years we're going to see more discussions about that in America. So there's quite a bit on, um, as I gather, uh, on on kind of political reform, for want of a better word. Yes. So we got um, Cory Booker sort of talking, taking a load of money from Wall Street a few years ago, and now saying he's not going to take corporate contributions. This is a sort of reaction against. Um, Hillary Clinton and her private speaking fees, I guess, as well as uh, like jumping to the <laughs> to the new socialist beat a bit. Yeah, super PACs, which are these uh, entities that people can give their donations to instead of to an individual campaign, and then the super PACs just kind of spew out ads in favor of a candidate or an issue have really changed the way, and they they came about because of some Supreme Court decisions, but they've really changed the way in the past 10 or 15 years how American politics is done and how great the influence of money is. And I think the rise of super, super PACs combined with the crash and sort of people's dislike of Wall Street really kind of became this perfect storm in the past couple elections, culminating with, I would say, Hillary Clinton and her much talked about Wall Street speeches where people are just like, oh, it's gross for a politician to take money from Wall Street. You know, Sanders made a big deal about how he didn't, he was not really taking big money donations. He was getting small dollar donations. Donald Trump had this whole thing about how he was rich enough that he could self-fund and he would never be in the pockets of Wall Street donors. Now, there are a couple reports out actually this week in the U.S. talking about how Trump is potentially advocating in diplomatic meetings for Sheldon Adelson, who's a, who's a huge Republican donor. So there, there are um, contradictions contained within his money pledges. But in, the, in this year of campaigning, Democratic candidates have been very vocal about where their money is coming from. And they say, you know, you'll, it's really common to hear 80% of our donations are from 
are in, in amounts that are $10 or less or something like that. The idea being we are a crowdsourced campaign and that is very important. Um, and, and the fact that people are kind of paying attention to or that there is lip service being paid to the systems surrounding political fundraising is really notable. Now, I should also say that, you know, big money bundling and big money donations has not gone away in America. Um, you see 2020 candidates out there and dinners in New York and Hollywood doing the same money dance. But the conversation, the kabuki surrounding how you raise money has definitely changed on the Democratic side. And it's and you're supposed to poo-poo Wall Street money. And um, just thinking about the kind of wider political scene rather than just the inside democratic thing, in this country, a lot of people are talking, you know, the Conservatives are very preoccupied with Brexit, which is pushing them into a sort of rather nationalist direction. The Labour Party is now in this very explicitly and expressly socialist position with, with, with Jeremy Corbyn. There's a fair amount of talk about a kind of whether there should be a new centrist um, party. Uh, and um, there is already the Liberal Democrats who don't seem to be doing very well. Uh, but there's some, um, you know, you do you do get people who maybe preferred politics before it went into this kind of starker choice sort of saying, oh, couldn't we have something in the middle here? And I wondered if the I mean, Trump is now all conquering, as I understand it, within the Republicans, the Democrats, you're saying, are moving left. Is there a mood? Is there any um, talk about whether whether there could be some kind of a new gathering in the middle in, in the United States as well? I think you are definitely seeing candidates like Joe Biden trying to ride the center, which is to say they agree with a lot of the... Um, social welfare reforms, they agree with a lot of the Wall Street reforms, but they package it in a way that is more palatable to cultural conservatives in the U.S. So um, I think a lot of that for Joe Biden has to do with the fact that he's an older white man who it talks a lot about, you know, his roots in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and is able to be a little folksier and he's a little uncomfortable you sense with some of the me too stuff there's almost identity <laughs> signaling going on to centrist voters in the US on that track but but Biden is more moderate in a lot of ways and i think you could see you know you see someone like Michael Bloomberg who i i don't think will have much grist given the fact that he is a wall street elite but he's he is a person who used to be a Republican who just switched his registration this week to be a Democrat. He thinks that the, the socialist rhetoric is too much. Um, you see actually quite a few heads of Wall Street banks who I do th who are Democrats, who give to Democratic causes, but who aren't comfortable with the socialist talk. Um, and, and again, going back to people who are more culturally conservative in the U.S. who might have been Democratic voters in the past, but... Trump appealed to them this time, this past time around. There is, I think, a real sense that that is a good path to victory for Democrats in 2020. And I think there might be a risk for Democrats in how much how much media buzz socialism is getting, in part because it's a new idea. Um, but I think, you know, you've seen someone like Nancy Pelosi be very cautious in her remarks about, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's win when, she, when Pelosi said... Well, it's nice she won in that New York district, but that's New York and there are lots of other parts of the country and there are lots of different Democrats who are winning. And, you know, to her point, you know, you see you look at, say, the race for Senate in Tennessee, where you've got um, 
a Trumpy Republican congresswoman running against an old school centrist Southern Democratic uh, former governor on the Democrat side. And, and I think the Southern Democrat former governor is up in the polls right now by a little bit. But, you know, you can say that in certain states that Democrats do need to win. <laughs> that centrist message is more palatable, certainly, than the progressive or socialist message. That was Claire Malone on the line from New York. And to read her piece on American socialism, visit our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk, where you can find all sorts of great stuff on global and domestic politics, as well as the arts, culture, science, and who knows, maybe oysters. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Stephanie Boland and Alex Dean, who are here in the studio. And do keep an eye out for our November issue of the magazine, which is in the shops now. Go out and get a copy. You'll see on the cover there's... um a series of rather terrifying London skyscrapers chasing the rest of the country down the street. Yep, it's all about the London problem, how the capital hoovers up a disproportionate amount of the nation's economic benefits. How can we fix it? Buy a copy and find out. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. Please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast, which really helps other listeners find us. The producer was Jay Elwes, and be sure to join us again next time for the Prospect Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.